0: My guest today is Professor Leith Abu who is a Professor of Population Health Sciences at Cornell University in Qatar. He is also the Director of the WHO Collaborating Center for Disease Analytics on HIV, sexually transmitted infections, and viral hepatitis. Previously, he held academic and research positions at the University of Washington, Imperial College London, and Osaka University. Welcome, Leith. Thank you very much for
1: the opportunity to speak to discuss to have this discussion today <laughs>
0: absolutely yeah, so you had a number of papers uh on this very topical area of covid uh, pandemic uh that many countries are struggling with uh, multiple uh waves of uh the problems uh different countries appear to be in different states uh of dealing with it. And I want to start with uh, one of your papers, characterizing the Qatar uh, COVID epidemic, um, advanced phase uh, sars uh, covid 2 epidemic. Uh, we call it COVID in short form. Mm-hmm. And um, Qatar, uh, obviously in the Gulf, uh, has a population of uh, about 3 million, uh, over half of whom are, you say, expatriate craft and manual workers. Um, As an aside, I grew up in a southern state of India called Kerala, Mm -hmm. and uh, I think a large proportion of those people actually come from that state. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so I know that population reasonably well. We aim to, you say, we aim to characterize severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 COVID uh, epidemic in Qatar. Uh, so, this is uh, sort of focusing on that population, right so so what, so what what is the data that you used and what do you find?
1: Sure yeah, so this uh, article is in reality uh, a compilation of several epidemiologic studies. Yeah. so we try to provide the descriptive epidemiology of the epidemic in, in, in Qatar. Uh, so also just to give background uh, in, in relation to our sitting. Uh, So, as you just indicated, uh, almost 90% of the population of Qatar are uh, expatriates Mm. who are in the country coming here for work. It's a country that has a very dynamic economy and is going through a very rapid uh, economic development and actually social development as well. So, this is why we have a very large expatriate population. Mm. Uh, uh now, uh, uh, as a result of this, actually, the elderly population here is very small. Hmm. Less than 9% of the population are above 50 years of age, and less than 2% are above 60 years of age. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's a very, very young population. I mean, yeah. mostly really... People in working age. This is really our population. Right. So this is why this is actually one, let's say, our one of our strengths in facing this epidemic, yeah. that we don't have that much of an elderly population, which are the most affected by the morbidity and mortality of this infection. Hmm. On the other hand. Uh-huh, yeah, please yeah. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah on the on the other hand we do have actually a vulnerability here mm. which is uh, the large uh, uh, craft and manual worker population uh, the reason for this vulnerability because typically this population uh, consists of single young men mm. who uh, uh, live together in uh, uh, in accommodations that are shared yeah so typically a given accommodation which is more like a dorm really yeah uh includes hundreds sometimes even thousands i mean you're talking about big housing complex Mm. that houses tens of thousands of even potentially workers in in multiple buildings that are all together Mm. Uh, usually these uh, workers they they uh, share uh, rooms they share uh, bathrooms they have meals together often usual uh, in a cafeteria style uh, sitting mm. now, now, why this is a vulnerability because we know from uh, influenza epidemiology what what 's known as the boarding school effect, yeah such settings, because you have large number of people living together where they interact with each other on a daily basis, then it's very easy for a respiratory infection to propagate very quickly in mm. such settings. Mm. And this is what we saw uh, also for COVID. For example, in Europe, uh, uh, much of the mortality, actually, about half occurred in uh, uh, centers which uh, actually uh, uh, care centers for the elderly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because these have the same actually vulnerability. Yeah. So this is really the vulnerability we had in Papar. In, in and indeed, this population was the most affected population by the epidemic here.
0: Yeah. So, so it's mm-hmm. a it's a very sort of interesting lab experiment in the sense that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, very small population of three million uh, with characteristics that are not typical uh, uh-huh. of other countries, uh, very young Population, but they're also um, sort of interacting fairly close together, um, mm-hmm. and so th- we don't really have that in in many parts of the world. And so, uh, so there are a lot of hypotheses around. You know, so the case fatality in the first wave was significantly different from the second and third waves. Some of mm-hmm. it is, um, uh, you know, in the in the Western countries. Some of it is probably due to the the denominator effect because. Uh, younger people are more in the denominator in the second and third waves than the first one. And then the clinical protocols seem to have improved. So we know how to sort of treat uh, severely ill patients as well. So that all is kind of feeding into the case mortality decline. Uh, but so so based on the, the studies that you have done and others have done in that population, what are the most uh, interesting features uh, that you find?
1: well actually you all alluded in fact exactly to one i would i would say the most fascinating aspect of our epidemic here yeah. is the very low severity hmm. so in fact we are right now finalizing a study that uh, exactly characterizes both uh, the disease severity and the disease fatality yeah. in our population and by age group yeah and what we found is that there is a very strong age dependence for, for both disease and for fertility. Mm. It grows very, very rapidly with age. It is really, really, it can be reached quite high values relatively for the elderly population, mm. but it's very small for the young population. And especially the, the, uh, the critical forms of the disease. I mean, uh, I mean, by a disease that requires an ICU treatment. Yeah these forms and fatality are very, very low for those below 50 years of age. Mm -hmm. So now, given that our population really mostly is just very young population, uh, and even after accounting for the denominator of all infections in the population, because we have done actually antibody testing, lots of antibody testing here, uh, uh, we found very low severity. So, so for example, uh, uh, fatality it was only only and it's really very fascinating yeah. was only two or 10,000 in our
0: population 2 in 10,000 so 2 in 10,000 is that That's is that actually. even lower than uh, what you see in sort of uh, traditional flu uh, uh,
1: no I, w- I would say you no know, it's still actually uh, uh, overall Higher than high. okay, no, it is actually okay. Now, the reason well, here, uh, why it's very low here because of the age structure of the population. Yeah, we simply don't have the elderly population, very small of it, and also this population wasn't much affected by the epidemic. Here, mm. we it was really well protected in our epidemic part of it because, uh, in fact, the culture was supported. Yeah. I mean, the, our elderly population lives uh, uh, in homes with their families. And, the, uh, and Qatar has the highest capita, per capita income in the world. Mm. So they live really in excellent housing. It's not like congested housing and so on. So so the elderly wasn't really much affected, fortunately, by the epidemic. Mm. And most of our population are, 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 are young. So, so if we compare these rates let's say to influenza in the us they are actually comparable comparable but this right. is not a, but these are not a really fair comparisons <laughs> right because you know it's a, in the us you have a significant fraction
0: of the population uh, above 60 years of age right right and so it's interesting you have an extension another paper here uh, age could mm-hmm. be driving variable in covid epidemic trajectories worldwide and so, mm-hmm. so you're sort of taking the Cathar data and looking across the world uh, to see if we can see some patterns, right? So so, so, what does that mm-hmm. study find?
1: Yeah, so uh, uh, this is, in fact, was uh, exactly as you indicated. It, because of our experience here, yeah. I mean, what, what we saw is a very different epidemic compared to what actually what was observed in Europe and, and, and the U.S., we simply did not have that level of severity. I mean, the total number of deaths we, we had is just over two hundred thirty deaths so far, yeah. and uh, the, our epidemic is really in 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 a low incidence phase right now. Uh, so it's it's really very striking how 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 low it is. So this really uh, compelled us to look further into 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 mm. this, and indeed through this study, uh, when we projected. The mortality rates per, I mean, the age-specific mortality rates. Apply them into different population demographic structures around the world. We immediately saw there must be very different uh, mortality rates globally by this infection, just simply because of the fraction of the elderly population. So, and and this is really why uh, I think we are seeing we are seeing a pretty very serious epidemic, let's say, in the U.S., and I think now it's well above 200,000 deaths in the U.S., but really in in countries which are ill-equipped to deal with the epidemic, Hmm. they are not seeing actually that much mortality. Uh, Let me take Syria, for example. It's a country that's, uh, uh, you know, in in a civil war, so the epidemic must be expanding uh, uh, rapidly over there, but actually it doesn't look like it, Generated much mortality. Mm-hmm. Africa is another example because Africa is the youngest, uh, you know, population in the world. Yeah. The epidemic is expanding, but really mortality has been really, really low. Uh, yeah. So, so this is basically a, a core idea for for this uh, study, is to see how the epidemic could be evolving in different uh, paths.
0: Globally. Okay, so 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 if you if you do a model, um, what you are concluding mm-hmm. here is that age is a very dominant factor in that model to predict mortality. Uh, but there is also an interesting observation here, like which is mm-hmm. about the sort of the dynamics of um, uh, dynamics of infection, how fast mm-hmm. and, and and how much, right? Uh, that that's also interesting. That that's also driven by age, it looks like.
1: Uh, yes, in fact, this is the other thing we wanted to look yeah. at. Uh, and And this started when we did a study to uh, model the epidemic in China. Mm. Now, if we take the China data, we see a very strong also effect for susceptibility to the infection by age group. Mm. We see a, a quite low exposure to the infection among the, in the, in the among children, very, very low exposure rate and we see much higher rates uh, among the elderly yeah. so 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 this brought the question could it be that really uh, there is even sus- the susceptibility to the infection varies yeah. by age mm-hmm. group now this pattern by the way is exactly the opposite of what we would expect for a cold in for a cold yeah. virus typically even the other common cold coronaviruses they tend to affect mostly children right. and less Affect less the elderly. It's it's. I mean, the younger, the older people, not only the the older yeah. people. Uh, I mean, other than children.
0: This is exactly the opposite. It's Well, yeah. So so disease susceptibility uh, mm-hmm. is also um, is also lower in children, and so, so you put all these sorts of observations together you will find countries with uh, average um, lower average age are experiencing smaller and i also find this idea of slower epidemics uh-huh. right uh, so that the disease spread is also also slower in younger population
1: uh, yeah these are actually very uh, very linked to each yeah. other yeah i mean maybe even how we even uh, accidentally discovered this So when we're we're doing the modeling for Qatar, then we took uh, uh, exactly the parameters from China. This is how we started, because at the time, China was the only epidemic we knew of. This was back in March. And we applied the parameters we derived from the Chinese epidemic to the Qatar epidemic. Mm -hmm. We actually get a smaller reproduction number in Qatar. Mm -hmm. The reproduction number R0 is the most important parameter that will determine the extent of the epidemic and also how fast it will go. Yeah. Only because of uh, differences, uh, because of these differences in susceptibility to the infection. So, 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 so absolutely, you are absolutely right. And let's say an, in an African country where like Niger, where half of the population is below 15 years of age, mm-hmm. and if children are less susceptible to the infection, and even when they get it, they clear it. Uh, they clear it quickly, so they don't spread it as much to other people. The epidemic is going to also uh, uh, to spread at a slower rate, and it's not going to reach the same extent as in uh, in other populations.
0: So, you know, from a policy perspective, uh, you know, one of the things that we are struggling with in the U.S is about the universities and schools. Um, In in Mm -hmm. the lab experiment in Qatar, you have a nice situation where the elderly is sort of segregated uh, from the Mm -hmm. younger population, uh, and hence you can control it. But in situations where you have intermixed age groups, um, you still have this problem, right? Granted, uh, both the susceptibility and growth rates are going to be lower, in schools mm-hmm. and universities, but they actually come home <laughs> and then transmit the disease Correct. to parents and grandparents, right? Um, so so in an intermixed situation, um, it doesn't really help from a policy perspective, I would think.
1: Uh, well, I would say yes and okay. no. Uh, I mean, definitely this intergenerational mixing yeah. Uh, of course, will is is a big challenge, and it appears to have been the case in the Italy, epidemic, mm-hmm. where where it's actually believed it was one of the causes for the severity of the of the epidemic. Uh, but really, again, it's I I think it's, it's still there is an opportunity over mm-hmm. there. I mean, we could we we through proper messaging, we can try to protect the elderly and reduce this vulnerability. Yeah but we take advantage of the fact that uh, younger people may be uh, less susceptible to the infection and definitely they are less susceptible to severe, severe disease.
0: Did you get any data on sort of the asymptomatic transmission that you know, younger people presumably uh, may have a higher percentage of asymptomatic infections too?
1: Yes, in fact, uh, we believe this is the case. Yeah. Uh, so uh, for, for example, one of the studies we have done is uh, a nationwide survey to see uh, who is actually what the fraction of people are infected. Mm. Uh, this is using PCR yes. and was of re- one of the really very striking uh, findings and we did this in early May before really the infection epidemiology was clear mm. enough uh, fifty eight point five percent of those who were PCR positive reported no symptom mm. whatsoever mm. in the last week. Right. We're talking about 58.5%. <laughs> right. So, I yeah. mean it was really very shocking to be honest with <laughs> you you know, you know when, when 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 we got this. Yeah. Huh? yeah.
0: <laughs> so, um, what is our understanding about uh, uh, people who are infected but show show no symptoms? are they able to transmit the disease at the same level as, as somebody who's symptomatic? Do we have any, any data on that?
1: Uh, I mean, we don't have data from Qatar that are direct uh, regarding okay. this. But indirectly, I think uh, uh, there is very little question that they do transmit. Mm-hmm. How we know that? Because we looked at the cycle threshold values yes. in, in those uh, asymptomatic infections which is really a measure of the viral load. How much viral load do they have? And they have, they do have very high viral, or some of them do have very high viral Mm load. So clearly, even asymptomatic people do have the potential to spread the infection. Now, we have also data from other countries and so Mm -hmm. on. And, And it's becoming increasingly clear that asymptomatic people do transmit the infection, And that even much of the, at least half of the transmission among those who end up uh, becoming symptomatic actually happens before they become uh, symptomatic.
0: Mm. Mm. Okay.
1: So, and and
0: this is really why it has been so difficult to control. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, no. Uh, So, so that's that's fascinating. So, I I want to touch on another paper, uh, which is also Mm -hmm. a a big uh, topic of conversations uh, across many countries, and that is. Evidence for the Level of Herd Immunity Against COVID Infection, the 10 Community Study. Um, mm-hmm. So the background here is Qatar, again, experienced a large severe COVID epidemic, uh, disproportionately affected the craft and manual workers, as we talked about, and they constitute uh, over 60% of the population. And, and so mm-hmm. the question you're asking here is, we know that the infection rates uh, could be quite high, like the PCR positivity you're saying is a, a, close to 60%. So, so high infection rate, uh, probably high asymptomatic uh, disease uh, state, and so, so the question, interesting question, would be, what is the sort of the herd immunity targets? And again, it's a nice lab mm-hmm. experiment where we could potentially uh, get get some insights into this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, ah, uh, no, question? no. So, yeah. So, so what what did you uh, find in terms of herd immunity? What is the level? that a community needs mm-hmm. to reach uh, before they can, you know, get to a herd immunity level.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this is a very interesting uh, debated issue currently. So uh, uh, now if if we go with the classic epidemic theory, yeah. uh, the, uh, the herd immunity uh, threshold is at 60 to 70% attack rate. So 60 to 70% of the population needs to be infected in order for us to reach herd immunity, which is, of course, very, very high level. This is based on the reproduction number for this infection. Now, however, uh, several scientists have argued that uh, we may reach herd immunity at lower levels. Mm. And part of the reason, because there is heterogeneity in the contact rate in the population, which actually will reduce it. So in this study, we chose 10 different workplace communities. These are big, like, complexes that houses uh, 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 workers here in Qatar. And it happened, we know, in these two communities, they were they were severely affected by large outbreaks. Yeah. So we wanted to see how much, really, exposure they had. Did, could it be that they reached herd immunity, given that these severe outbreaks happened, we know, it happened mm. over there? And indeed, it turns out 60 to 70 percent of them we're already infected through antibody. Mm. And we do not really, we saw very little active infection over there. So so the conclusion is that uh, really in order to reach herd immunity, at least in such homogeneous populations, we need definitely 60 to seven percent exposure rate. Right. So... So, so, I, so based on this study, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical. I mean, some people have argued we could reach herd immunity by only 15 to 20 percent of the population.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: It does not really look mm-hmm. so.
0: Hmm. you know yeah so so mm-hmm. that's interesting so that 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 has been like you say has been conventional wisdom uh your data appears to sort of confirm that conventional wisdom uh two thirds mm-hmm. of the population uh now, I wondered uh, from a policy perspective again uh where there is an intervention that basically i mean this is not an experiment we can really realistically run, and that is if mm-hmm. the severity and the ability to 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 um uh, to counteract with the disease is a is lot higher at lower uh, lower age populations, uh, then uh, experimentally, at least, you can you can have a thought experiment that says that uh, if the younger population, uh, 60, 70, 80% of them are infected, then that population ultimately gets herd immunity. Um, but the problem, obviously, not an experiment we can run. I'm just doing a thought experiment here. The the other problem here, I don't know if you have any insights into this, that we don't really know the long-term effects of COVID, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, I was told that the Spanish flu, uh, 1918, 1919, a million survivors of Spanish flu at that time, uh, seems to have uh, developed Parkinson's disease ten years later. Ten years later, long time later. Correct. Yeah. And so, yeah. so when governments and policy professionals think about um, better policies, we, we don't really have a good estimate of the disease burden, right? Uh, of this. But what is what is what are your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, you are absolutely right. We really don't know about the long term consequences of this infection. Yeah and uh, definitely as you indicated uh, we know that the spanish flu there were actually consequences that w- in fact were not even uh, uh, discovered till till decades mm. later actually but in fact they were discovered i incidentally when they disappeared <laughs> because when they disappeared it, it, all of a sudden it was very evident that the population that was the cohort that was affected by this uh, uh, disease disorders happen to be the, the cohort that lived through that uh, pandemic. Mm. So this is how we in, even establish causality over there. Uh, so, yeah, we don't know really the long-term effects. But also, I think we should not be uh, also uh, exaggerating mm. this. We are talking about really truly rare conditions. Yes. And I think similarly here. I mean, it's, I mean this infection is not like a very, very different, uh, so to speak, infection from the kind of infections we we, we had Mm. already. Uh, In fact, we had several cold coronaviruses that are not very different, uh, you know, from this infection, uh, you know, uh, and we have been experiencing them for many, many years. In fact, I think one of the hypotheses is that one of the currently very mild coronaviruses Mm. Uh, has its origin, in fact, in, in a pandemic that happened in the 19th century. And it evolved to be very mild, actually, right now, you know, and only in a few a few decades. So eventually, COVID may just join the club <laughs> of those common cold coronaviruses. And really, it doesn't appear that these common cold coronaviruses uh, generate very serious, let's say, or uh, in, in a high level... Uh, long-term uh, disease disease outcomes. So I, I I am more on the conservative side. Let's, let me see. I have to see and follow for long term before really we 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 we, we become uh, too obsessed about mm. this. Uh, now back to your very interesting thought question. Yeah. If we let's let the young people uh, experience uh, you know the infection in order to protect the elderly, yeah. and we reach the immunity okay. in this way. Well, that's an interesting <laughs> question, you know. Yeah. You know, definitely. Uh, but honestly, uh, uh, now of course there are many, many issues uh, with with such idea ethically, you know, uh, and right. so on. But honestly, I don't think we need to go that far because I am pretty convinced that we will have a vaccine soon. Yeah. Uh, now, why? Why I'm I'm pretty convinced? Because. Right now, we are really at a golden age for vaccine research. I mean, the kind of technologies used right now to, de- to develop the vaccines are, are amazing. Things that we are starting actually for the first time. And they really appear to have a lot of potential. Uh, uh, now, also, uh, one uh, reason for my optimism is, in fact, another study we conducted here, which relates to reinfection. <laughs> So we have been uh, following the cohort
0: of infected people here in Qatar to see whether they are getting reinfected. Yeah. And uh, let me, oh, let, let me uh, so uh, we will yeah. come back to that late. So let's take a quick break. Okay. And when we come back, we will we'll sure. talk about the re-exposure uh, aspect of this. Thank you. Great. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast Providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense So we are back um, late year. You know, so we were talking about uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, sort of a nice experiment in Qatar with 3 million people, very young population, very close together, uh, living conditions, and uh, showing very high infection rate, uh, but very, very low mortality. So age uh, seems to be a driving factor, um, uh, uh, of course, for mortality, but also for just susceptibility to disease because uh, there is also very high levels of asymptomatic uh, disease incidence in that population. Um, So I want to now go into another paper you have in this area. So analyzing inherent biases in COVID PCR and serological epidemiologic metrics, where you say uh, observational data show that infected persons remain PCR positive for a prolonged uh, duration and detectable antibodies develop slowly with time. So that, that has a lot of implications, right? Both, uh, so, so when we go out and test, we're going to find high positivity rate, uh, but many of them are probably not going to develop the disease. Is that, is that how, um, how I should think about that?
1: Uh, yeah, this is uh, one way to uh, yeah. think about it, yeah yeah, so so this infection has uh, two interesting uh, patterns. The first one, as you indicated, some uh, many people actually can uh, stay PCR positive for a very long time. Mm-hmm. In fact, we have seen here in Qatar people over eight weeks they continue PCR positive. But when we look at the CT value, the cycle threshold value, which tells us about the viral load, we see very high values which are indicative of non-replicating virus. Hmm. So these must be just viral fragments that keep circulating. This is basically the debris that remained from, so to speak, the hurricane. (laughs) That's <laughs> right. you know yeah. the body, you know, in dealing with this infection, you know,
0: right.
1: billions and billions of virus of viruses were were produced, and somehow the system still has a lot of those de- debris circulating. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the existence of this prolonged PCR positivity complicates uh, epidemiologic measures. Hmm. We will go let's say and do a survey, and we will see high positivity but that does not mean and truly uh, there is a lot of active infection in mm-hmm. fact a good fraction of those simply have already cleared the infection and they don't and they are not really at risk of uh, of, of disease or at least except yeah. maybe for
0: long term uh, consequences uh-huh? so so what 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 is uh, what is the reason that antibodies develop slowly with time is it is it the testing protocol issue uh, I mean, intuitively, I would think that, you know, if the, the body is getting a lot of infection, it would develop antibodies it'll take care of that infection. But, but mm-hmm. why is that it taking long time for to detect those antibodies? Uh,
1: really, for this infection, yeah. uh, uh, it looks like T cells play a very important role in, in immunity. Mm-hmm. And if we really think of it evolutionally speaking, antibodies really are not, uh, meant to be primarily to uh, uh, fight a primary infection. Yeah. They are actually the arsenal that the body develops to prepare itself for future infections by the same virus. Mm. You know, the body has other means to fight the infection other than antibodies when in the, during primary, primary infection. Oh, I so, see. Okay. Yeah. yeah so so
0: yeah. the T-cells is sort of... T-cell sort of, um, um, kind of defense it's a little bit different from from antibodies, right? So they they can also memorize uh, this incidence and and get better for future infections? Uh,
1: T-cells also do have their own memory. In fact, this is also uh, one of the hypotheses uh, we we have for why the severity of the infection here in Qatar has been low, Hmm. uh, because... Uh, our population is highly, uh, you know, diverse. It's also well-traveled. We have lots of travel yeah. uh, here. Yeah. So it's possible that our populations have had in the past lots of exposure to other common cold coronaviruses. Mm. Now we have the growing evidence, really one study after another, that show a uh, 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 prior exposures to these common cold vir- viruses creates some kind of immune memory and they cross-react with with Mm COVID-19. Now, uh, because of this immune memory, uh, this immune memory may not protect against infection, but Mm -hmm. appears to protect against disease because Mm -hmm. there is already an immune response over there. So when the virus comes, it cannot prevent the infection, but actually it it reacts strong enough to prevent uh, progression to more severe disease forms.
0: Okay. Yeah, I know that you haven't looked into this, but there was another hypothesis about the BCG vaccine, mm-hmm. uh, which is the TB vaccine, as you know, and, and the Correct. difference uh, difference they found in the data between Eastern Europe and Western Europe, uh, mm-hmm. as well as, um, you know, South Asian countries, um, there was a hypothesis that said, you know, the BCG vaccination was much more prevalent in those areas, and it seems like uh, mortality rate is much lower. Um, mm-hmm. Did you see anything anything like that in the Qatar population?
1: Uh, we, we haven't, but really very much our population is all also BCG, BCG vaccinated. Right. So it's not as easy for us to explore this hypothesis. It's, an, it's definitely an interesting hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, I mean, naively, however, I would have been quite skeptical okay. about Because, I mean, BCG is not even effective against TB. (laughs) You know, I mean, this is really the reality. I mean, it's not really that effective for against TB. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, typically people get it in their childhood. So, I mean, by the time, you know, they get, uh, I mean, the exposure uh, for COVID happens decades later. So, I mean, but of course, biology is always surprising you know and we may find interesting ways by which this could have actually played a role
0: okay okay and so the yeah. t cell memory uh, idea that we just talked about uh, what is your feel about how this is going to develop over the years so every flu season we get a different flu we have to have a different flu vaccine to counteract it um, mm-hmm. are we going to get into a situation that we need a covid vaccine every year uh, what, what, what is uh, what is your thought
1: Oh, uh, uh, excellent question. I mean, this is, and of course, the question that we really uh, don't know what will actually happen. Yeah. Now, we know, however, uh, it's quite possible, if let's say we don't have a very effective vaccine, quite possible what will happen is COVID 19 will just become another common cold coronavirus. And it will enter, uh, uh, you know, in circulation and just behave just like the other common cold vari- coronaviruses. It's likely it will become milder and milder over also the years, hmm. because uh, probably the evolutionary pressures will be against severity.
0: Yeah, because it kills the yeah. kills of the host. It cannot of jump course. from host to host, right? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, so quite
1: possible. And this is what we believe what happened with the other common cold coronaviruses. Whenever they entered, it's very likely they were severe because they were really entering in a, a naive immunity, naive population. Uh, but over the time, of course, they become very normal. Yeah, so so it's quite possible. Now, whether the vaccine may change this dynamics, this is what remains to be the question. I think if we have a very effective vaccine, uh, I'm talking about very highly efficacious vaccine and we can uh, really uh, scale it up quickly uh, before really the virus mutate enough to make the vaccine less effective. Yeah. We may have a chance to eliminate this infection globally. It may not be easy, yeah. but I think theoretically it's possible. And the kind of global response we see the ba- to the, this pandemic is different from any other infection. I mean, I mean, the world has learned its lesson I doubt
0: that you know we we, yeah. <laughs> we 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 learn lessons and we forget them
1: for <laughs> this one, to be honest with you, I'm more on no, the optimistic side the reason why because i mean i i I spend my career working on on infections that affect the poor, yeah, and it's very, very difficult to really you know to fight for these <laughs> because. It doesn't affect really the rich people. Really? This pandemic is different. Mm. It really, I mean, if you think of it, any, any capitalist in this world will see this pandemic as a real enemy because it caused massive economic losses mm. that the world has never seen you know, before. So, so I think that the, the, the economic incentive to, uh, to fight this pandemic is very, very different from all other actually epidemics. This is why I'm more on the optimistic
0: side. <laughs> okay.
1: okay, And, and you yeah. know, when, when, when there is an interest and there is an incentive, yeah. you can see miracles happen.
0: That's right. Yeah, Like you said, technology is developing quite fast. So if you put your mind to it, we can solve this mm-hmm. problem. What, what would you say um, sort of the minimum threshold efficacy that is needed um, for the first vaccine or first group of vaccines? Uh, to, be, uh, to be useful? What sort of the minimum threshold you
1: would see? Uh, any value for the efficacy will be useful. But of course, what we want is sufficient efficacy to reach herd immunity. Yeah. Yeah. Here, I would say we need uh, 60 to 80% somewhere over there yeah. in order really to have a, a minimal chance of being able to reach herd immunity and control infection transmission.
0: Okay. So so that is where the typical flu vaccine comes out at also, right? About about 60 mm-hmm. to 80% every year?
1: Oh, it's even quite often uh, significantly less than that. Oh, sometimes than that. it's actually, oh yeah, sometimes even below 50%. You know, for the influenza vaccine, it's uh, they, they try to produce it before actually they know exactly the circulating strain. Uh-huh. So it's a hit and miss situation, you know. So uh, uh, they only they count on cross reactivity, right. but here no. Here actually we 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 know the virus, and it doesn't look like it's mutating
0: rapidly. Mm. Okay, you know? so 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 I think we have a better chance. Yeah, so that's what I want to ask you. So from an evolutionary perspective, if we get an effective vaccine, will that mm-hmm. drive mutations? Will that drive evolution? Will that drive more potent strains to to appear in the future? But what, what do we know about that?
1: Uh, well, it, it, clearly, it will create an evolutionary pressure. So yeah. there will be uh, evolutionary pressure for the vaccine to evade. Uh, sorry, for the uh, evolutionary pressure for the on the virus to evade the vaccine. Yeah. So it could. I mean, in principle. Yeah. Uh, now, but again. I mean fortunately for this virus it does not look like it's mutating rapidly. Yeah. This is this is I think uh, you know it's really uh, encouraging. I mean we have seen one big mutation that's actually becoming dominant hmm. which is this 614 uh, mutation but but really that's more the exception rather than the rule. I mean I, I but I, again I don't have that background. I'm more an epidemiologist but yeah. to my understanding it does not look like it's actually e- e-
0: evolving quickly. Okay, okay, that is uh, uh, that is encouraging. Uh, so I want to finish up with uh, your paper on reexposure, um, and there has been a lot of talk around this, and it has a variety of implications, both vaccination as well as further policy interventions. Uh, so again, uh, Qatar data, what does it tell us about uh, the pro- possibility of reinfections?
1: Yeah, so, so we are fortunate here because it's a small country yeah, and we have everything centralized and we, we have universal healthcare system for everyone. So we have all the data on COVID-19 in one place. Mm. So we can dig into this data and really look for a lot of things. Yeah. So one of the things we looked into is this issue of reinfection. Mm. We know everyone who got infected and has uh, a laboratory confirmed uh, diagnosis. So we, we followed them to see whether they actually got infection, inf- reinfected. Hmm. And uh, the result was we did find 50 evidence uh, for uh, reinfection in just over 50 cases. Yeah. So we went also and tried to uh, do viral genome sequencing, for a proportion of them where we managed to get actually paired samples, Mm -hmm. original infection and reinfection. And we discovered, indeed, some of them got reinfected. There is no question that we had reinfections in our our epidemic. Mm -hmm. But this is not really the important finding. The the really important finding was calculating this risk of reinfection, which turned out to be very, very low. It's actually 10 in 10,000 or an incidence rate that's actually less than one per 10,000 person weeks. Hmm. So we're talking about really, really rare events. Hmm. That's
0: uh, this reinfection. Any, so, uh, any difference yeah. on the prognosis uh, of, of the reinfected people? I know that sample set is very small, but do we know anything?
1: We know all the reinfections were actually mild. None of them was severe, critical, or fatal. None of them. Okay. Which which actually makes sense because uh, you we would think somebody who is getting reinfected they already have an immune response that could help them clear clear the infection. Yeah. But again, as you indicated, it's a, it's a small sample, you know, so we cannot be conclusive. Maybe it's just we don't have enough sample yeah. because really our severity is also very, very low to begin with here.
0: Right, right. Do we know it is uh, reinfection or reactivation, you know, just like the chicken pox uh, uh-huh. organism? Um, so it stays in the body for a while and then comes back again. Is it, is it really reinfection? Uh, again, probably uh, tough uh, to say in small, small, no, small. No, uh, yeah. For
1: in, in our case, yeah. we definitely can, uh, can tell yeah. uh, that some of them were definitely reinfections mm. because the, the virus that was sequenced, uh, the first virus and the second virus were actually different. Uh-huh. I mean, in fact, in, in all four cases for which we have very conclusive evidence for reinfection, mm. Uh, uh, all of them, even the, the first virus, had one mutation that did not exist in the second one. Hmm. Okay. So it's very, very clearly
0: these are two different viruses. So generally speaking, you would say um, people were worried about reinfection, but just, just looking at the probability of that happening and the much better mm-hmm. prognosis, uh, even if you get reinfected, it's not really a concern, uh, again, from a policy perspective.
1: Up to now, yeah. because we don't know how long immunity will last. Uh-huh. But at least uh, the data is pretty clear within actually at least the four months, because we, we, we did the follow-up for four months in that study. Right. Uh, clearly, we do not see really, uh, it's very, very rare event. Now, uh, but how long this will last, we don't know. Uh, for some of the common cold viruses, it appears that immunity lasts only for about a year. Mm. uh for SARS it appears it actually lasted for 3 years mm. uh, we will see i think this might be closer to SARS yeah. probably yeah. you know
0: than than it is for the common cold viruses but this is remains to be seen so 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 that's something that we have to d- determine and that will then um drive uh, sort of the vaccine frequency
1: uh uh, yeah of course yes uh, uh, definitely but even before that i think i think this is really uh, quite very encouraging uh, finding in term- for the vaccine yeah so this is why actually i'm i'm really uh, very optimistic that we will have a vaccine soon uh, because if we see that the 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 uh, immune system has no problem in uh, confronting the infection clearing the infection in from the body and having uh, sustained immunity for at least a few months, that's actually very encouraging also that the vaccine will work. Mm. This is not HIV. Right. I mean, I, 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 my basic work is uh, much of it wa- is in HIV. HIV, the immune system never manages to clear the infection. Mm. So no wonder why we are having hard time you know, developing a vaccine, but this is not the case here. Right, right. I think this is more really standard infection where there is very strong immunity. It looks like. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's that's encouraging. So, so in conclusion, then, you know, um, we went through a pandemic. Uh, we did some things wrong. We didn't quite understand it early enough. Uh, the mm-hmm. interventions were highly varied across the across the c- countries. We didn't really have a worldwide. Coordinated response. So hopefully we learn a lot from our mistakes. But if there were another strain behind it, uh, maybe mm-hmm. not next year, but a few years down the down the road, based mm-hmm. on your experience and what we, we have uh, seen in Qatar as a lab experiment, what would be sort of the the top two three things that you would say that we we should do uh, once we identify something like this happening?
1: Mm-hmm. Rapid action. Yeah. I mean, really where we failed here uh, uh, is in not appreciating what many have been saying for years. The, the fact that the pandemic happened is not surprising at all. Yeah. We know, we know this, this was going to happen. <laughs> I mean, there is no question because this has been happening for all human history. I mean, there is and now even there are stronger reasons for it to happen, mm. given how connected the whole world ca- has come together. So this has happened, this and this will continue to happen, but clearly this is where rapid action is actually is very very important. We have to have very strong global surveillance system, yeah, and and uh, and uh, train teams everywhere to how to confront and isolate such an outbreak quickly. This is really the best chance. I mean, imagine now. If let's say uh, uh, chi- uh, China acted uh, quickly over, uh, you know, in the, when once they discovered the infection, mm. and they they had a system already in place for very rapid action, mm. you know, probably we will never know that SARS, uh, that this COVID-19 was distant to be what it was. <laughs> You know, because you know, in fact, nobody would have probably known about it. All would they know, oh well there was this outbreak and China contained it. You know. Yeah, but a, of course.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I was I was uh, just wondering though, just like you said late, you know, the in 2020, uh we have eight point four billion people. Uh and you can get from one part of the world to the to another in sixteen hours, and there are a lot of people doing mm-hmm. that, you know. Uh mm-hmm. and course. so um, you know, it seems to me that one of the issues I saw—correct uh, me if I'm wrong—is that we didn't have a coordinated response, right? So, I don't think something like this, if it were to occur in the future, just one country um, will be sufficient. So, like you say, there has to be a worldwide surveillance system, and when when something raises a red flag, it has to be a coordinated response by all countries, not just one, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, this
1: is where, uh, honestly, I, I see an opportunity for this pandemic. Yeah. Uh, why? Because this is the first time humanity has faced such an acute global challenge. Yeah. You know, I mean, we have lots of global challenges, like you know, global warming and so on, but so acutely. Yeah. You know, this is the first time. So maybe it's really a lesson also. A global challenges needs a global response. It's very simple. <laughs> right. You know, right. you know could, it, could, it, could this pandemic be uh, an agent for change where we st- start really thinking we really need to work all together to confront really the global problems?
0: Is it an agency that, like WHO or uh, would you suggest sort of redesigning the, the, the whole system?
1: Uh, you know, WHO, of course, would be a great agency to lead this effort, but really, I mean, I work with the WHO. I'm director of WHO collaborating center here. WHO people expect much for WHO, but they don't empower WHO. Right. I mean, we we cannot expect something from WHO if we are not empowering them. Mm-hmm. I mean, the WHO have been is have huge responsibilities. But they don't have sufficient resources Great. for these these challenges. So I think we need to empower the WHO more. We need also uh, to really everyone to work with the WHO. Hmm. I mean, lots of countries have the ability to work with WHO. I mean, it's. I mean, here in fact, our collaboration center is one example to this. We 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 are a collaborating center with WHO, but we are independent from WHO. We do our research, which get which gets fed into WHO and support WHO mission, you know, and this could be a model for many, many other uh, countries as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, it has to rise to the status of the United Nations uh, because these threats are potentially Mm -hmm. uh, much more severe threats in the future. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, so, so like you say, resourcing, uh, empowering a world agency that can, you know, uh, that can uh, do things without the constraints of uh, whatever political regime is in place, uh, one place or the other. We cannot control that, uh, mm-hmm. but there has to be, you know, some way to uh, for a world agency to step up and, and really both do the surveillance as well as when it identifies something, take actions without any constraints.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely we need a, a much stronger response that, than what happened. Yeah. 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 Hopefully we learn
0: from it. Uh, <laughs> this has been My great, uh, Late. Yeah, thanks so much for spending time with me on a weekend. And yeah. uh, thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much. It has been really a pleasure to have this uh, very uh, interesting and rich discussion. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. So, thank you very much. Bye. Bye bye.